So anyway, you get the impression that Jesus is more like Mario than the rest of us. He has infinite resources, never seems depleted. I mean, think about it. Jesus, in our passages this morning, they, they're going off the wilderness in part to sort of take a break. But the crowds are in hot pursuit of Jesus because they de- their demand for healing never ends. There's always somebody ready to have Jesus clear, uh, cure their blindness, their paralysis, their TMJ, their demon possession, their nut allergy, whatever. There's always more need. And he doesn't seem to be ever run out of his ability to heal. I mean, at no point does Jesus ever, like, you know, lay a hand and like, oh, sorry, man, just not working. I, no, nothing, right? The wiring or something is loose. No, never happens. At the same time, we do read about times in which Jesus indicates a need for a break. It may be that the disciples themselves need a break, but it may be for himself as well. And so here they are, they, 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 they cross the sea, and oh, for Pete's sake, look who's coming. Everybody in their uncle with a gimpy knee. You know, they're hoofing it up the mountain. I mean, they've only just situated themselves when sure enough, here comes the needy bunch. And Jesus responds, by saying, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip's answer is to remind Jesus that this is the real world, a world with limited resources. I mean, let's assume we can find a caterer out here in the wilderness. Unless somebody has half a year's wages just burning a hole in their pocket, we don't have enough dough to buy that much bread. But Jesus asked him this. To test it. Now, what, 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 what's the test? What, what is Jesus testing? Well, as I was just saying, Michael, John doesn't refer to miracles as miracles. He refers to them as signs. They aren't to be understood in isolation, independent of anything else. No, nope, they point to something larger than themselves. So this just isn't. This isn't just a mob. Of, of medical patients. This isn't just about the disciples checking accounts. It's not just about dinner. Jesus is see, wondering whether Philip sees something familiar about all of this. What's happening here? Do you see what it's pointing to? Whether it sparks anything. Does it trigger any associations in his mind? You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first time we read about Jesus going into Jerusalem is on, uh, is when he's riding a donkey, right? It's, it's the Sunday of the week in which he is executed. Uh, everything in those, in those Gospels, everything is leading up to his visit to Jerusalem. Well, John does not develop the story that way. John has, you know, tells stories in which Jesus goes into Jerusalem, uh, and it's so in chapter 5, here near the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and he's going into Jerusalem for the same reason that he will go the week he is executed. It's Passover. And Passover is when everybody comes to Jerusalem. They come to celebrate their liberation from Egypt. The exodus, where God leads them out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
great phrase from Exodus. They celebrate it because in this story, they have hope in a God who liberates, and they want God to do that again, not from Egypt, this time from Rome. And there are those within Israel who think that the reason that that day is delayed is because of of their failure to keep the law of Moses. All right, so what's interesting, what happens in that last chapter is Jesus enters into Jerusalem and, uh, and that whole issue of fidelity to the law comes up. The leaders discover a man walking around, you know, prancing around carrying his pallet on a Sabbath, totally breaking the law. And so they go and scold him. Like, who told you to carry that pallet around on the Sabbath? And, and the, the guy gets nervous, like, uh, that guy over there points over to Jesus. And so they come storming over to Jesus. And they're going to scold him as well. But Jesus is having none of it. This is what you think it means to follow the law of Moses? This is what you think it means to make that Passover story your story? And here's what Jesus says, here's a direct quote. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, the Passover story is a story of God liberating his people. And here's this guy, the text says he was, he's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he's been liberated from that. And you don't see that. You see somebody who, who <clears throat> broke the law. This is what Moses was looking for. The story, the law, it's all about liberating God's people, not enslaving them. Anyway, so that was in Jerusalem before our passage. Jesus has got to get out of town a little bit, having ticked off the leaders. Of course, these crowds are now gathering all over the place. But it's not just a getaway. The location is important. In the wilderness, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. And it's there that God feeds the people, miracle bread, manna. So the Pharisees could not connect the dots between, couldn't, couldn't see the sign of what was happening with that man who had been paralyzed for, thir- or suffered paralysis for 38 years. So now Jesus is asking the, his disciples, do you see the sign? Can you connect the dots? That God's feeding people in the wilderness. It's during Passover. But Philip doesn't. And neither does Andrew. You know, Andrew sort of chimes in, well, I've got this uh, kitty meal. Not that that much means much. And again, Jesus is unfazed. He doesn't scold Philip for failing the test. He just says, all right, let's, let's get the people to sit down. Supper time. But it's not just supper time, it's story time. Jesus is going to retell an old favorite. And once everyone's seated quietly, the storyteller introduces the central character. He takes the bread and gives thanks. 
give thanks to the God of life. He takes the meal given them by some random kid and transforms it into divine provisions. What had been an inadequate meal has, in the hands of this storyteller, become a gift from God. And the people are fed in the wilderness. And there are leftovers. Twelve baskets, sort of like the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes, wilderness, feeding with miracle bread. And then, of course, what happens in the second half of the passage, which we're not going to talk about much, is that Jesus walks across the sea as though on dry ground, sort of like Moses leading the people across the Red Sea. Don't they get it? Does anyone get it? Can anybody read the signs? Well, yes. Sort of. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Hearing their words, Jesus said, thank you. See, Philip, some people get it. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Actually, what happens is when Jesus is catching on to what they're doing, he gets a little freaked out. You know, they've witnessed this miracle feeding. They've determined to, that they have been cast into the Passover and the Furious, part two, and they're ready to coronate Jesus King, make us up some Molotov cocktails, and take it to Rome. And Jesus wants nothing to do with it. He skedaddles up into the hills so they can't find him. You know, <laughs> the responses in this story are a little bit like our own. Total cluelessness or viva la revolution. We can't see the signs, let alone interpret them, or we swear God's planted a billboard in our front yard. And a story like this assures us that we should respond. Uh, I don't know. Neither way is the right response. It's complicated. How do we read the signs? I had a friend who uh, checked into a psych ward, addicted to drugs and alcohol. And while he was there, someone introduced him to, to AA and the first of the 12 steps, or first or second. And it said, oh, it's the second, actually. First is to admit your powerlessness over alcohol. The second is to turn your will and your life over to a higher power. So there was this invitation of you turn your life, your will and your life over to a higher power. Well, you know, one of the things about addiction is it sort of leaves you trapped within yourself, unable to see a world beyond your own, need, your own needs, your own fear. And, and for my friend, a concept like God was little more than that, a concept. I mean, he'd gone to church, but only because his family wanted to keep up appearances, so that meant nothing to him. So, higher power. What higher power did he know? What, what could he give his life over to that was some power greater than himself? Well, he decided on music. Music. How does that even work? 
When you feel overwhelmed by a craving to drink, you're going to stop and offer a prayer to music? Are you going to turn on the radio and just hope some song inspires you to stay sober? Music? That's your higher power? It was the best he could do. It was his, it was his kitty meal. And God made it enough. It was enough for him to be able to enter into that larger story. It was enough to make his life a sign that God liberates those who are, who are not only addicted, who are not only enslaved, enslaved in Egypt, but enslaved to addiction. His life turned around. I recently heard a story by a church musician was a part of this large church talking about a Sunday in which just before the service, the pastor said, you know, I'm going to make an open invitation to anybody who wants to be baptized. Uh, they can just come on down. And, and everybody sort of freaked out. They were, a little, they were unprepared for this. You know, I mean, they had no idea how many people would respond. Anyway, and it turns out people did respond. Hugely, and it turned out they weren't prepared. Uh, in fact, they had to run like this, the guy telling the story said they had to run like a you know half a dozen people to the nearest you know TJ Maxx and stores to buy all their towels and to buy T-shirts so that you know when people came out of the the Baptist all soaking wet they could you know give them a towel and give them a T-shirt. I mean it was sort of chaotic. And the musician was saying. You know, he had not prepared enough music for all this. And so he, they, they've gone through all their music, and he's trying to figure out, okay, what song should we do? He's trying to pick the song, and he's trying to communicate it to the rest of the band to play the song. And this is going on. He's just trying to check the line to see how much time he has. Okay, another song. And then you see somebody over here trying to get his attention. And, and he's like, yeah, I know. I'm trying. And then they say, no, no, no. And they're pointing. They're pointing. And, like, oh. and he looks. There at the Baptist, Baptistry, standing chest high in the water is his six-year-old daughter ready to be baptized. They want his attention because they want to give him the opportunity to do it. And he did. And he's telling the story and you can tell he's getting choked up. I'm listening to I'm getting choked up. It's a lovely story. It's a lovely story of, how we, of a church that was not at all prepared for the story God was going to tell in their midst that day. But it was enough. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes we get the signs. We get these signs and we don't feel like we have enough. And yet God shows up and works that story of liberation. But sometimes we get the stories all wrong too. You know, my friend, after 15 years of sobriety, a friend came to realize, you know, that his addictions weren't really the problem, they were the symptom of the problem. The, the real problem were his insecurities and fears. Alcohol was just, and the drugs were just how he masked those insecurities and fears. And he no longer felt those insecurities anymore. Do you really need to fear alcohol? He knew the king of kings at this point. Could he not kick back with the king of beers? So he tried. Turns out, nope, he can't. And he got, he got, you know, he, he uh, fell off the wagon, as they said, say. Well, fortunately, he came back 
and sobered up again, a little more humble, a little, a little more aware of how he can misread the signs. He's been sober ever since. In that story of that church musician, I heard that story as part of a podcast I mentioned a few weeks ago. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This was a story talking about the rise, the, the, the tremendous things that were happening in the midst of this. But of course, there is a fall because that pastor became too confident at this ability to lead the, read the signs and just steamrolled people. And eventually, a church you know, where he had 30,000 people involved was suddenly closed its doors. We can misread the signs. How do you read the signs? How do you avoid misreading signs? I mean, I think there's a tendency to think, you know what, I'm just going to play this safe. But, but can you? Can you play it safe? Is it safe to simply not put yourself in a position to experience the boundless resources of our God? To find yourself in the midst of something bigger? A story of liberation? Missing out on that also feels like a big risk. I don't presume that there is an easy answer to how do we read the signs. I mean, quite frankly, how do we read the signs is, is our task every time we go to the scriptures. How do I, how does this, how is this something, what's happening here, part of my story? Try to under, trying to understand how our own lives uh, are, are a part of that story is the task of the whole of our lives. It's the task of a lifetime. But I will say this, I think our passage offers uh, the beginnings of an answer. Uh, in fact, my, and I actually think, I was saying to Jen yesterday, the other day, I think, man, you know what, I think I got this, I, I, I have more that I want to say. She says, well, I'll just make it a two-parter. I'm going to make it a three-parter, so stay tuned. Uh, so there's a bit of a cliffhanger this week, and you know what to say about cliffhangers. Yeah, that was a cliffhanger. Ah, oh. well, that's, that's, that's like a wood on the front end joke. You know, all right, anyway, 0 for 2. Moving on. All right, so, this, but there is sort of a partial answer in this text. Because the story is essentially this. What do we have to feed these people? Not enough, says Philip. Andrew says, all we have is this. Jesus took what they had and gave thanks for it. That, that, that simple gesture right there is giving thanks. That's the beginning of an answer. Give thanks. The simple act of giving thanks is itself a sign. Gratitude engages us in that larger story of liberation. I mean, if we're only going to give thanks when we're sure we have enough You'll, you will always only see what you lack. It will never be enough. But if your starting point is a recognition that operating in the midst of all this lack and limited resources is a God of unlimited resources, a God who lacks nothing, you see things differently.
you calculate the equation differently. You don't look at what you have and say, I don't have enough. You look at what you say and you say, I have a God of unlimited resources plus this. I have reason to say thank you. I have all I need and left over. Imagine operating in a world with that equation in mind. Gratitude equals this plus a God of infinite resources. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what that experience would be like in the world? What, would, what would, might be a word to describe somebody who operates in the world with that equation in mind? Liberating? Their, their lives would be a story of someone who has experienced liberation, whose story has become connected to this, this story we read in the scriptures. Their, story, their life is a sign that something bigger is going on. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen.